I forgot to uh, say no talking during the break, please. <laughs> no talking, no talking during the break. I forgot to say that. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, when everybody was talking, of course, I didn't have the heart to say <laughs> no talking during the break because everybody was enjoying each other's company. It was so convivial and so nice. And there was a certain kind of pent-up energy. We've been sitting together for hours, not saying anything. Let's talk! <laughs> so I didn't have the heart. But it's too bad that, I, that I'd forgot to say that, because uh, I guess most of you probably don't know this, but there is a beautiful way to be together in silence. Just not talking, but appreciating that each other is there. And uh, the truth of the matter is, people are so much more wonderful when they don't talk. <laughs> they are. Because although you can talk and everything could be nice, eventually something, somebody says something that's not good to you, and then there's a problem. But if you don't talk, the only thing there is, this is a human being, just like me. I have no idea what they think, what they believe in, what they care about, but it's obvious that they're a human being just like me. And there's something really beautiful about this, and some of the most precious friendships that I've had in my life are based on the fact that mostly what we do is sit in silence together. So I'm sorry that I deprived you of that opportunity to notice that. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I'm sure you've had important things to say to each other. It was good. <clears throat> I guess uh, during the lunch, it would be unrealistic to uh, say that there's no talking, especially if you're going out. Do we have food here or no? Are people are going out. Yeah, so so we, won't, we won't have that during, during uh, lunch. But, but, it, but in general, uh, in retreats like this, the idea is that during the breaks, we don't talk. And then when we come back, let's say when you come back from lunch, when you come near the space of the meditation hall, you begin to be quiet again. You know, not as a kind of punishment that you were bad, now you can't talk. <laughs> or a deprivation, you di you're dying to talk, but you can't talk. And the authority figure is telling you you're not supposed to talk. But with the sense of uh, the gift of that. So remember when you come back to come in that spirit. And it is really wonderful to be here with all of you today <clears throat> uh, and with Dorothy, who we, we don't have a chance to do this very often, and when we do, we, we, we really enjoy it. We, it's wonderful to work together, especially in this room that uh, was conceived of as a meditation room by our dear Rabbi Lou, may his memory be for a blessing, he thought of this, he put this into the design of this shul. Nobody knows that he also thought of two little interview rooms, his room and my room, that nobody even knows. That's why they think, why are these funny little windowless rooms here? What are they doing here? Who put them in here? It's ridiculous. But that's what they're for. Nobody even knows that anymore. 
I, I hope and pray that there will not come a day when nobody knows that this is a meditation room. I do preserve the memory of Do you? Thank you. Do. Thank so you. Thank you. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. But everything, everything disappears in the end anyway, so. <laughs> the other nice use of this room is that it's used for nap time for the kids. Oh, that's good. Well, that's, that's basically what we're doing. You know. The silence is maintained. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good, yeah. Yes, at the, at the, we were just uh, uh, at the, having a retreat at the Santa Sabina Center in San Rafael, which is a, you know, a Catholic uh, nunnery, but now a retreat center. And they have a rule in the courtyard. It's always silent, no matter what. With retreat or no retreat, you never talk in the courtyard. And that's a beautiful thing to preserve a silent space. So maybe they preserve this, more or less, sort of, as a silent space. That's nice. So uh, we really wanted to meet today because uh, it's Elul and, we, and it really is important. You know, we had in the past all kinds of programming for Elul, uh, which we, were not, we haven't been able to do in the last pandemic and everything else, but we used to have intensive, you know, intensive meeting every week and so on. So at least we have today. So today is really important to us as a day of <clears throat> tuning ourselves, preparing ourselves for the holidays, for the month of Elul. And as you know, and, and this is real, uh, Rabbi Lu, along with many others, I'm sure, point out that the beginning of the time for preparing ourselves for the holiday is actually Tisha B'Av. And um, I was able to be here this year here in this room, I know others of you were too, Dorothy and others, for the Tisha of observances, chanting uh, Echa here with the room dark, sitting on the floor, but little do they know, we're happy to sit on the floor, <laughs> on our cushions. What an what a awful book, Echa, you know. It's really terrible. I guess it is really more or less an eyewitness account of what it was like in Jerusalem after the destruction of the first temple and the raising of the city that's what they did in those days. You conquer a city, you burn it down, and you build your city on top of it. So that's why when you excavate, you find one civilization after another, you know, all the way down. And so they, they pretty much raised Jerusalem, I guess. And people were wandering around in the streets, like literally insane, because you can't be sane when your city is literally burned down and there's nothing to eat. So it really is an account of that, and it's actually, if you read it, uh, it's very painful to read. And uh, it was chanted beautifully by our friends uh, with the melody that's very mournful. 
I think next year we should chant just each section and then stop, you know, and feel it instead of kind of hard to chant the whole thing through. So that's why that's the beginning. And that's why it's the beginning, because um, in order for us to really see what we are <clears throat> and what we're up against, we have to start by being brought low, by recognizing how vulnerable we actually are, and in some way, you know, how pathetic and puny we all are as human beings. In other words, we have to come to absolute zero, the bottom of the barrel, before we can begin to put ourselves back together again. And to do anything less, to do it in any less serious a way, would not be enough. And in a way, you know, that zero point, that horrible moment of the raising of the city is the beginning of Judaism as we know it. Even though the temple was rebuilt and destroyed again, more or less you could say that ever since that moment we've been in exile, we've been coping with this condition of exile outer exile, but also inner exile. They always go together, right? Our outer situation and our inner situation can never be separated one from the other. And so Judaism, that we know, nobody knows any other Judaism than the Judaism that began at that point. And it makes you wonder, <clears throat> will there ever be, is there any possibility for a Judaism without exile, without suffering and alienation? Is there a possibility of a kind of return to a version of a pre-exilic Judaism, a non-tragic Judaism, or, or is there no hope for that? Is, is the wish for redemption by its nature always a wish never to be realized? Or, or not? Or is redemption something that we can sense now in our breath, in the, in the texture, the feeling of being alive, in the illuminated, almost not there, margins of our living. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> I, I use my whole voice <laughs> during the chanting. <coughs> and this reminds me, uh, I, a long time ago, I watched a video of uh, a talk, of one hour talk by the great uh, scholar of Jewish mysticism, Elliot Wolfson. <clears throat> and his talk was about uh, the late uh, Rabbi Schneerson, the famous Rebbe of the Chabad movement. 
And the, and the theme of the talk was, did Reb Schneerson actually think, as apparently many of his disciples thought, and still maybe think, that Reb Schneerson was the Mashiach? Did Reb Schneerson believe that? Ah, perfect, thanks so much. Did Reb Schneerson really believe that? That was, so he was analyzing a lot of talks by Reb Schneerson specifically to see what did he say about that. So if I understood, and I should listen to it again, I'm going to find it, listen to it again, because it was a fascinating talk. And if I understood Elliot correctly, he said that Reb Schneerson said that the nature of Jewish time which is God time is that the Mashiach cannot possibly come cannot possibly be a person arriving as an objective event in linear time. That could not be. Therefore, the Mashiach is constantly here. Buried in the flow of time. Everywhere, including in the neshama of Reb Schneerson. So yes, Reb Schneerson is the Mashiach, as are you, <laughs> and everyone you'll ever meet. That's what I understood, anyway. <clears throat> And I do think this is a profound and unique teaching of Judaism that is so concerned with this world and all the details of it, almost obsessively. <clears throat> and it's the paradox of our lives. Because it's saying that our exile and our redemption are one and the same thing. So I, I have been, uh, I've just actually snuck away from the retreat that ends ended an hour or two ago to be here so I was there and then before I was there uh, just a few days before that I was came home from Chicago where I was attending the World Parliament of Religions which is one of these gigantic you know conventions in a giant convention center that you get lost in trying to find literally where you're going and it was a little, I don't know, I, I'm jaded, I guess. It was kind of boring, <laughs> the World Parliament of Religions. One speech after another in these gigantic rooms with 10,000 chairs in them, where there's 200 people sitting in the 10,000 chairs, <laughs> listening to 50 speakers, one after the other. On the other hand, uh, there's a million workshops, right? So many workshops that it takes a book this thick to just tell you what the workshops are. And every workshop, every single workshop pretty much is somebody reporting 
about the fantastic work that they're actually doing to promote good around the world. So this is actually, even though who can attend these workshops, nevertheless, it's very uplifting to realize that you didn't know this, who knew? Because, you know, there's so many things going on around the world, so many passionate people, religiously motivated, to do everything you can think of to promote justice and goodness and climate improvement over around the world. So that was pretty nice to see. But the actual reason that I was in Chicago was not the Parliament of World Religions. It was because I am on the um, board of an organization called the Elijah Interfaith Institute. <clears throat> I don't know why I'm on this board. <laughs> I don't know how it happened that I'm on this board. Other than the fact that the director, uh, the founder of this organization is a rabbi from Jerusalem named Rabbi Alan Goshen Gutstein, who is a very persuasive rabbi. <laughs> At least he's persuasive to me. I am a person who is highly subject to the persuasiveness of rabbis. <laughs> <clears throat> so somehow I'm persuaded to be on this board. However, uh, and I've been on it for so long, I can no longer remember how or why exactly, but I never attend any meetings because since the headquarters is in Jerusalem, the meetings are always in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or Istanbul or someplace like that that I can never go to, you know, so I hardly ever go to the meetings. But pandemic, so now all the meetings are online and I went to many meetings. And so when Elon said, we're having the meeting in Chicago, you must come. He called me. I don't know how many times the phone would ring. Oh, it's Jerusalem. My, my relatives, there's something wrong. It would be Elon on the phone. Are you, did you get your flight yet? You're not going to fly on Shabbos, are you? <laughs> so on and on. So I went there. All of which I'm bringing up just to tell you about a moment in the meeting of the Elijah Interfaith we were discussing, so it's all these really amazing people, I have to say. There's one guy there who was the metropolitan, like the head of the church, the Orthodox Church in the Ukraine, who had to drive eight hours out of the country to Bucharest to get a flight, because you know, there's no flights. And then uh, this wonderful woman who is the archbishop of the National Church of Sweden, and all these, a whole bunch of Buddhist nuns and monks and Hindu nuns and monks and, and uh, all kinds of uh, people from everywhere, really. And there were really a lot of Muslim guys who were really, really wonderful people in a very convivial meeting. And we were discussing the topic of, you know, what are we do? why are interfaith meetings worthwhile? Are, are they just a nice thing for us? We're getting together, it's nice. Or is it something essential to our spirituality? That, that was the thing we were discussing. So I, I made the remark that, <clears throat> that it seemed to me that anybody who had really achieved wisdom in their own tradition would automatically be an interfaith person because they would love and appreciate their own tradition, but they would see beyond it which would make them automatically interested in other traditions. They wouldn't be trapped, you know, in the confines of their own tradition and have, feel that they had to defend it 
against all comers. They would be interested. So I said that. In other words, we don't really need interfaith because we, you know, from our own tradition, we get to that place anyway. That's what I was saying. And Alon got kind of upset with that remark. And I hope he doesn't mind my saying this. Sorry. <laughs> but I don't think he would mind. He said, no, this is not the case in Judaism. Now, remember, he's a rabbi in Jerusalem. He's not a rabbi here. He's a rabbi in Jerusalem. He said, no, this is not the case in Judaism. He said, the great sages and leaders that I know in the Jewish world do not have that kind of interfaith wisdom. And that's why, and I think he was speaking for himself, I think that he revealed in that moment that he had started the entire Elijah Interfaith Institute because he needed as a rabbi in Jerusalem, this conversation for his own survival. And he needed it to achieve the kind of wisdom that I think is in Judaism that he, I think, perhaps was not feeling. And, and I think it's really true. Maybe he's right that maybe Judaism, not only Judaism, but maybe right now, especially Judaism, does need interfaith. And, you know, our beloved Rabbi Lou was nothing if not an interfaith rabbi. He wouldn't be a rabbi, right? If it wouldn't be for interfaith, for his Buddhist practice, is how he had the inspiration to become a rabbi and why he was such a unique rabbi. He was not crypto-Buddhist. He was a Jewish rabbi. But it was because of his interfaith involvement that he had the genius that he had. And in, in the retreat that I've been doing all this week, with Sylvia Boorstein and Rabbis Jeff Roth and Joanna Katz, they're all interfaith Jews. And Jeff's teacher, who maybe was the greatest rabbi of the mid-20th century, Rabbi Zalman Shakta Shalomi, was who he was because of interfaith. He was very involved in interfaith practice and dialogue. So I think that it is really true that in our time, this is the radical thing about our time, is that spirituality in our time has to be like that. It has to be interfaith. We have to be in dialogue with each other because it has never been more imperative all around the world that we get over our divisiveness and our confusion about what our religions are and it's completely possible to honor our particularity, not water it down in any way, and honor the closeness of our community that's built on that particularity. And I think we can do that without being small-minded and paranoid. I hope we can. We better. Because religion, I think, has a really important part to play in healing the many wounds of this world right now, including the climate wound and the urgency of climate. Religion has a, place to has a role to play in that, and it won't be able to do that if it's narrow-minded and divisive and small-minded. So we begin with zero. We begin with 
covering ourselves with sackcloth and ashes and remembering all the violence, not just the violence that happened to us, all the violence, all the destruction, all the fear, all the pain that exists now in our world, all the suffering that we have in the past and in the present now are collectively and individually undergoing our spiritual practice, including all of our joy and our delight in one another, has to take into account that. We have to start with that. Otherwise, we're just kidding ourselves and putting a little nice, fluffy sweetness over something that is not sweet at all. We have to really acknowledge and grieve over what's really the case. And then we can go forth and we can actually take care of it. So it really matters. Our lives really matter. Your life really matters. <clears throat> our healing, all of our healing, really, really, really matters. This retreat matters. It's a serious business. At the same time, we can have fun, we can enjoy ourselves, we can smile, we can laugh, because we're together doing this, right? We're receiving this together. And we love each other. And we cheer each other up. So today is a great day to me. A very, I can't imagine a more pleasant and beautiful way to spend the day than with good people in silence, being serious about our lives. So yeah, I'm sure all of you have read many times This Is Real, in which Rabbi Lou talks about the various uh, parshiot that we read during um, Elul as preparation for the holidays. I'm sure you've read his commentaries to them briefly. He wrote commentary in that book. And I want to, for my talk today, I'm, I'm talking a little bit about Shoftim, which we read a couple of weeks ago. I have a few things to say about that. <clears throat> Shoftim, judges, judgment. A person who is capable of assuring justice. So Moses is talking to the people who, who are preparing to enter the land. So they're not going to... The idea is you don't just go crashing into the land and do what you feel like doing, this is going to be different. We're going to be different in this place than people have been. So all the ways we're going to be different. And the first way is we're going to have justice. We're going to appoint judges who will pursue justice in the land. Justice, justice, it says. Just twice, repeating the word. Justice, justice shall you pursue in the land. Another little story from Elijah Interfaith Institute. <clears throat> There's a rabbi there. I forgot his name. His, name, his first name is Jeff, Rabbi Jeff. <clears throat> I forgot his last name. But he, he was, uh, I think he seems like he's from America, but he uh, was another person, like Rabbi Lou, who became a rabbi a little later in life. Somehow this is a good idea, you know. 
Uh, and so he was, uh, he has a congregation of Sephardic Jews from various places in London. He lives in London. So we were talking, and um, somehow I said to him, um, what do you think about, things are so tough, you know, in Israel. I don't know much about it, but it just seems like, wow, you know. What do you, what do you think about it? What do you say to your congregation? It must be so hard. And he uh, didn't seem to, he didn't seem very anguished about it. I mean, he, of course, he thinks it's difficult, but he seemed to be clear in his own mind about what he says to people. So I was impressed with that. I said, well, what do you say to people? And he said, well, I don't talk about this a lot. It's not one of my subjects. Probably, I don't know about it, but probably rabbis, it used to be Israel was the number one subject. I bet you not the number one subject anymore for a lot of rabbis. But anyway, he said, I don't talk about it much. But when I'm asked, I, I, I talk about it. I say what I feel. And here's what I feel. And, and I bring it up because it reminds me of Shoftim. It's, it's actually basically Shoftim. He said, I tell people when they ask me that God didn't give us this land because we were so great and we deserved it. Or somehow... It was owed to us. God was very clear. For in, in Shoftim, for example, that we were given the land, kicking out the people who were already there. The reason why that happened is because the people who were already there, according to Shoftim, did not have justice and goodness built into their way of life. And we have been chosen specifically to practice justice and goodness in the land. This is with Rabbi Jeff talking. And if we don't do that, why don't we think that we also will be kicked out by someone coming who would provide justice and goodness in the land? That's what I tell them. That's what I say. I thought, wow, you know, that's pretty courageous, I think, and clear thing for uh, someone to say to a congregation. So that's Shoftim. You should appoint magistrates, judges for your tribe in all the settlements that yud heh vav is giving you, and they shall govern the people with justice. Now, you'll remember in his commentary, Rabbi Lou focuses on the actual precise wording of the passage, which actually says, place judges at the gates of the settlements. And I, most translators don't use the word gates. They figure, it, well, it's just metaphoric for, a metaphor for the settlements, judges in the settlements. But it actually says, at the gates. And quoting a Hasidic commentary, Rabbi Lou says that the gates means the gates of perception, the gates of the eyes, the ears, the nose, in other words, and the mind, the way the world comes to us through the gates of our perceptions and our thoughts. So justice means that we would have an accuracy and a sensitivity and a truthfulness about the way we receive the world 
in our eyes and in our ears and in our minds. So judges are not autom automatically just because they read the law book judges. These are judges are people with sensitivity, with compassion, with understanding of life. This is the hope. This is the idea that they get because they have a sensitive way of receiving the world and appreciating the world and understanding the world and understanding people. They are people who have understood their own lives. An unbiased judge is a judge who understands their biases. That's what's called an unbiased judge. I remember when some of the Supreme Court justices said they're unbiased. They're just like referees. They have no biases. That's a biased judge who doesn't say, I have my biases, I have my perspectives, and I know what they are, and I try not to let them get in my way. That's an honest, unbiased person. So this is, these justices who are at the gates, are at the gates because they're sensitive people, sensitive to the world, sensitive to themselves. They know themselves. If they know themselves, they know other people. That's one of the things about our sitting. You sit there long enough, you can't fool yourself anymore. You know who you are. And you forgive yourself, eventually. And then you can forgive everybody else for being who they are. Breath by breath. Period of meditation after period of meditation. We, we sit with ourselves. We're not trying to know ourselves. We're trying to know our breath and our body. Somehow or other, did you notice? Thoughts come, right? And you see things. You understand things. Not by trying to understand them. Your whole life you've been trying to understand stuff. You went to school, so on. Not by trying to understand anything, but by just sitting there in silence. You find out who you are and who everybody else is. And when you know who you are and who everybody else is, like I say, you forgive yourself and you have some love, you know. I'm doing the best I can. I know I am. And I know everybody else is too. People who are, appear to me to be really horrendous, they got that way somehow. So, in other words, justice comes out of the silence. And that's why we're given the land. It's not a piece of real estate. It's a place to experiment with a world in which justice rules. So I, I like to I notice phrases that appear again and again and again, you know, and they, they begin, to me, they begin, the more you read the same phrase over and over again, it, it means more and more and more. 
And it means less and less what it seems to mean, and more and more it means other things. So this phrase, Ha'aretz asher yud hei vav hei, Elohecha noten lach, this land that yud hei vav hei, our God, is giving us. So, in terms of the plot, you know, there's no mystery about this line. There's a bargain, you know, starting with Abraham between God and the Jewish people, the Israelites. There's a deal, a covenant. God's end is God will protect us and give us this land to take care of. We, in turn, will praise and worship God and walk in God's ways. We will, in other words, practice justice, kindness, caring. And we're supposed to do this as a vanguard for humanity. We're supposed to be a nation of priests bringing this to all of humanity. So we're not supposed to be like the other guys who presumably smash and grab and then worship gods who smash and grab. No, we're going to be different. That's the deal. Now, we kind of have to reckon with the fact that for many thousands of years, it would appear that God has not held up God's end of the bargain. Right? Not doing a great job of protecting us. And furthermore, the land we had for a few minutes and then boom, no more. 2,000 years of exile. Not only from that land, but from other lands that we fled to and you know, established a community and then boom, get out of here. So this is not a great job that God is doing for us. It's been a little rough, so to speak, for quite a while. So, it is not unreasonable for us to say, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> this is not, God is not holding up God's end of the bargain. An attitude that begins already in the Torah. What? The food around here is no good. We were in Egypt, they had better food, you know. So already, we're complaining in the beginning. So this is not a, a new complaint. And the rabbis, for many generations, in response to this very reasonable complaint have explained this is not God's fault. It's our fault. Because we have not been good enough, caring enough, kind enough, just enough. So if you have a little voice inside yourself that says you're not good enough, you're not kind enough, you're not just enough, it's not surprising. Because a lot of rabbis, persuasive rabbis, you know, have been telling us this for many thousands of years. And that's why God has responded in the best way God knows how, by giving us the suffering we need to understand more deeply and to straighten us out a very traditional interpretation that lately many people have resisted for good reason 
and is perhaps in our time post-Holocaust beginning to wear a little thin. So these words, Ha'aretz asher yud hevav elohi elohecha noten lach, are just referring to the promise. One of God's promises in the bargain. But when I read these words, I don't feel I feel something else besides that simple plot level meaning. The word ha'aretz, I have no idea, you know, really the connotations and feelings of that word in Hebrew. <clears throat> but I have a lot of feeling for that word. To me, it, it doesn't mean real estate. It means the earth. This incredibly perfect, this earth is perfect because we are perfectly made to find a perfect earth. In other words, we have eyes to see sunsets. Our eyes are perfectly organized to see sunset as beautiful. And the whole world is beautiful to us. In the beginning, the name for the earth was Gan Eden. And it was explicitly beautiful and perfect. To tell you the truth, I really, the whole idea of real estate gets on my nerves. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I know uh, that real estate is the foundation of modern economics. Somebody created the idea that you could own land. <clears throat> Nobody else could have it. You could have it. There was a legal right to it, and then you could do stuff. You could increase production, productivity, blah, blah. There could be wealth. Real estate, the whole world depends on the concept, which is a concept of real estate. Without it, there's no civilization. But it really bothers me, real estate. The idea of owning land seems like one of the most absurd things in the world. I own this property. It's mine. But wait, you died. You're gone. The property is still there. Maybe it owned you. You didn't own it. It really bothers me. Another thing about the Parliament of World Religions, <clears throat> one of the, there were a lot of indigenous people there, right, who have a powerful spirituality. And, and almost always when there was an indigenous speaker, the subject was climate and caring for the earth because indigenous people are now a vanguard all around the world for climate. Indigenous people never created the idea of real estate. They did not own any land. They were there on the land, and they understood that the land was a gift temporarily to, to care for the land, and the land was caring for them. They did not think they owned it. I know, like, up in the Pacific Northwest, where I go a lot, there's this funny thing where the tribes own the land, and but now the, they have to. This, their tribal ideas have to be squeezed into the real estate laws, you know, the property laws, which are the law of the land. And so now there's a piece of land 
that like there's a deed that like 787 people own pieces of this land, you know what I mean, or whatever, and it keeps proliferating all the time because they don't buy and sell anything. The earth is sacred. Haaretz is sacred. The land was given to us not as real estate, but as sacred. We blew that, I think. We, we, we messed up on that. And then the word notain is a very dear word to me because it's my name, Natan, which means gift. A name that was given to me because my father's father died before I was born, so I was given his name. The land is a gift. It's given as a gift. But wait, what about the bargain? A contract. You hold up your end, I'll hold up my end. Apparently, in these words, it's not a contract. It's a gift. This land that we're living on, this house that we live in, this food that we're eating, this air that we're breathing, this water that we're drinking, a gift. The people in our lives that we love, a gift. It's all a gift. This body, this mind, a gift freely given. And so our goodness, our sense of justice, our sense of caring also must be freely given. It must be a gift, not an imperative, not an obligation, not a pressure. But it's delightful to give a gift. Now, I fully realize that when you read Torah, it does not sound like what I'm saying. I get it. It doesn't. At the plot level, the Torah is full of coercion and violence and trouble. At the at the, the, the you know the uh, parsha that we read on Saturday, uh, today's Sunday, yesterday was Kitetzi, and all, when all of us got together to think about who was going to <laughs> who was going to take what lines in Kitetzi, you know the way we do it to, to comment on. Everybody said, oh, get this Kitesi out of here. I do not want to talk about anything in this horrifying... So that's when we hit on the brilliant idea, which was really brilliant. We'll get Dorothy to do it. <laughs> that's, why, that's why we tried to get you to do it, because everybody said, no, 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 we can't. Dorothy, will, let's let her do it. So Dorothy was actually ready to do it. Except in the last minute, it turned out that we had a Zoom audience, and so we had to use a microphone, and Dorothy's not a microphone user on Shabbos. So I, I was actually glad for you. I was glad that you did not have to suffer with Kitetsi, and you could stay home for Shabbos. Anyway, everybody found, if they, and they searched around to find a little corner of Kitetsi that was not horrifying, and everybody managed to find a little something. And I said, no, I'm going to just choose the most horrifying part, you know, so I did. And uh, I found a way to talk about it, which I really believe was true. I won't go into it. But that didn't prevent me from uh, raising up a lot of trouble 
in the retreat, many people. Somebody said, forget the Torah. Do we really need, who wants to read a book with stuff like this in it? Forget it. It should be redacted. <laughs> and I said, well, it already is. You know, who, who, nobody brings up these things on the, from the pulpit anymore. Anyway, all I'm trying to say is, yes, the Torah is not an easy book to read. But we've reading it, been reading it for thousands of years, and we have figured out how to look more closely inside the words, kind of like what I'm doing here. Right? Look more closely inside the words. Just don't take them at face value. And then you hear, ah, some other song there in the Torah than the one you would hear if you just read it naively on the surface of it. And once we begin to hear that other melody, we read the Torah really differently. That, this is something Rabbi Lou was really good at. He heard that melody. He was really good at reading it. He could read the rotten parts of the Torah and he could read them well because he heard the other melody. And, you know, maybe it's a good idea to not mention things that are scurrilous and horrible and change our language so that there's no offense in it. There's a point to that, I think. But maybe it's not good to commit ourselves to not seeing the violence and the pain. Because how are we going to learn how to live with it and transform it if we decide we're not having any of it, we're not going to entertain it, we're not going to see it, we're not going to allow it, we're going to disallow anybody who brings it. How are we going to have justice and caring for everyone if we decide that certain ones and certain things and certain thises and certain thats are unacceptable to us? Life is not easy. It isn't. Bringing justice to this troubled world where there's so much shouting and confusion is a tall order. And those of us who are older, maybe some of us who have had a passion for justice our whole lives, and now that we're old we say, well, look at all the good we did. Look at how nice the world is now can't say that. In fact, the opposite. It's like, oh no, look at all of this effort and what things are worse, not better. I don't know if that's true, but it can look that way. So I think if you're older, you have to be a little humble and say, well, there was a time when I thought I knew what to do. I'm not so sure anymore exactly what to do. But, I am sure about what is right. I am sure about what is good. I know to hurt other people, to hurt the earth, is not right. I know that. And I try not to do that. 
I am not doubtful about that. So I'm committed to doing what is right and what is just. That is not a problem for me. That is not a confusion. I will do what is right and what is just. What will happen as a result of those actions, I don't know. I mean, I have some faith that in the end, we will see justice. We will see our really taking on this question of the climate in the way that we need to. Maybe too slowly for me, but we will. I have faith in that, but I don't know exactly what the results of my actions will be, but I'm not confused about what to do. And the more I, to be honest, the more I practice, the more I continue my path, the more trust I have and the more clarity I have about what to do in the future. I trust the future. I don't dread the future. Bad things will happen in the future. This, there's no doubt. No doubt. Bad things will happen to me in the sense of things I don't want to happen. You know, illness, death. It'll happen. Bad things will happen to people I love. I know already how many people I've already lost that I really love, you know. So I know already. So that is no doubt about that. But I, nevertheless, I trust the future. I absolutely trust the future. And the more that I sit, the more I practice, the more I chant. It was a beautiful the way we chanted today. It was really nice, you know. I'm used to it now, but the first time we chanted together at Makora, I thought, I never heard davening like that before. You know? Everybody davening together, connected like that. Who ever heard of that? It was a fabulous. Now I'm used to it. Now I love it still, but I, I don't think it's amazing anymore. <laughs> I'm used to it. The more we do all these things together, the more we trust, the more I trust in the future. I have, I'm, I'm not worried about the future. I trust in it. I'll close with my uh, version of the 27th Psalm, the Elul Psalm. <clears throat> You'll hear in it why I could have not given my talk and just read the psalm and why we want to say this psalm every day this month. <clears throat> you are my light and my help. Whom should I fear? You are the fortress of my life. Whom should I dread? When the narrow ones gather their strength to devour me, it is they who stumble and fall. Even if a royal army were camped outside my gate, my heart would not fear. And when they struck out with terrible weapons against me, even then, I would trust. One thing I ask for, and these are the lines we always chant, because it's the most pleasant part of the song. <laughs> One thing I ask for, one thing I hope, to live in your house all the days of my life, to behold your loveliness every morning in the light of your dawn. Until, on a doomful day, 
You secure me in your precincts, conceal me within the folds of your covering tent, place me high and safe upon a rock, my head lifted above the engulfing waves. With joy in my heart, I will sacrifice within that billowing shelter, singing and playing my abandonment to you. Hear my voice when I raise it up. Be gracious. Answer me. And speaking with your voice, my heart sang, Seek my presence. I will. Do not hide your glowing face from me. Do not reject me in anger because of my shortcomings. You have always been for me. Don't cast me off now. Don't walk away. My helper, my friend. My mother and father forsake me. But you take me up. Show me the way. Guide my steps on the clear path against the ever-present cliffs and thickets. Protect me from the noise of desire and hatefulness from false words and shouted accusations. If I did not have faith in your rightness, that it would bloom in this living land, it is unthinkable. I wait only for you with strength and good courage. I wait only for you. Let's take about a minute to sit. And isn't that what our sitting is? Waiting for you. (laughs) 